Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. One of the great movies, 1974, inspired by California Water Wars, which had been going on since the beginning of the century, the 20th century. The latest battle in the war focuses on pistachio nuts, very lucrative crop in the Central Valley in California. A billionaire couple called Stuart and Linda Resnick have acquired the rights to enormous quantities of water in drought-stricken California to keep their pistachio trees alive and productive. Others have to go without water entirely. The latest investigation into this anomalous situation is a documentary called Pistachio Wars. It's made by journalist Yash Levine and New Zealander Rowan Wernham. And Rowan joins me now from... Where are you, Rowan? Hi, Kim. I'm uh, in New York. Uh, I'm glad you got the Chinatown reference. Yeah. Uh, it's a great touch point. <laughs> it is a great touch point. Uh, ain't nothing new under the sun. And there have been a number of investigations and indeed documentaries about this very situation. The latest incarnation of it is this huge pistachio orchard, which shouldn't really exist there at all. How did the Resnicks get the water? How did they get it? I mean, they bought their way into the farming out there um, by buying up a large company called Paramount Farms. Uh, but they sort of realized through several serious droughts that they were very dependent on this water that came from this giant network of aqueducts created by the state in the sort of late 1960s or you know mid-century, um, last century. Uh, so there's water rights that come with the land, uh, but they a lot of their farms don't actually have um, groundwater. They're completely dependent on this water that ships through these canals. So when there's a drought, they're quite vulnerable. Um, so one of the things that they've done in the late 90s, they managed to privatize a large water bank um, called the Kern Water Bank, which is a sort of an underground aquifer, um, which can hold enough water to supply LA. Um, they kind of picked it up in a pretty shady backroom deal from the state. And so this is one of the things that they have now that they can use to store water and sort of deal water and, you know, tide their crops through times of drought. I was talking to um, Kim Stanley Robertson earlier in the program, and he knows he lives in California and his, his favorite place is the, is the High Sierra. Um, and he suggested that California is now past sustainable integrated Groundwater Management Act, SGMA, uh-huh. which, right. which which can essentially renationalize the water, make it make it a commons again, rather than a private commodity. Is that your understanding? Um, oh, I'd say that's a pretty optimistic. He is um, an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a typical Californian, a great Californian optimist. Um, I mean, my, my understanding of the STMA is that um, it's one of those laws with a very long tail to it. Um, you know, the, I think in 2014, the law was passed and they had until 2022 to come up with their plans to be sustainable with the groundwater. Um, and they don't have to actually implement the plans until 2042 is, is the deadline to be sustainable. So you can already see that there's a lot of room for that goalpost to shift. Um, 
there is internal pressure within the industry because the um, amount of water they've pumped out of the ground there is, um, you know, it's causing the whole valley to stink. So it causes what's called subsidence. It's actually the largest um, man-made modification to the surface of the earth uh, because so much land has sunk so much in central California. Um, so it is get damaging the infrastructure and even the canals don't flow correctly and they crack. So there's some pressure, you know, no matter how little you care about the environment um, to fix it. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, like the economic forces that drive California, um, they're not amenable to shrinking. Um, you know, it's always growth and they're going to have to retire, you know, maybe five to 10% of their farmland in order to, um, you know, meet the sustainable goals of this, this thing. And I should also note that, I mean, California's um, constitution already um, enshrines water as a public um, commodity. It's, 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 you know, it's in the public trust. So water privatization is already illegal, according to the um, California state you know, constitution, or at least, you know, most interpretations of it. But in reality, um, it's privatized through a number of sort of, I don't know, complicated and technical means, <laughs> which I'd be happy to talk about if you want to hear more. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? It is so complicated. You had to to get it into a documentary so that it is comprehensible. Yash came upon this story when he came upon a housing development, Victorville, I think he called it, a housing development which had been forced to buy water from a farmer hundreds of miles away in Silicon Valley. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting and kind of inciting incident for getting into this um, story. Uh, but basically, they Victorville was buying water from the current water bank, which is this water bank that's majority controlled by a wonderful company in Paramount um, and some other big kind of players out there, I think, Vidovich. And, when you say you wonderful know, company, you, you, you need to put a footnote. Wonderful company is the outfit that the Resnicks have called themselves. That's right. The wonderful company is Stuart and Linda Resnick's farming conglomerate. Um, so one of the things that they did when they privatized the bank and what was known as the Monterey Agreements was that um, they changed a lot of the rules around how the water sales are handled in the state and they removed some of the oversight. So um, you could sell water that didn't exist. Like There's a lot of water rights in California for water that never happens because it doesn't rain enough that year maybe there's half as much water as there is water rights assigned so what they do is they sell what's called paper water to um suburb suburban developments that need consent in places like victorville these kind of you know exurban you know desert suburbs uh, you know in the fringes of los angeles and the sort of surrounding area so a place like victorville might buy a whole pile of water off somewhere like the water bank and find out that it doesn't actually exist um so then they have to then go onto other sort of sides of the private market, private market uh, and maybe even pay more. And, you know, that gets kind of dumped on the ratepayers. It's all very, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the people that ran the water bank, their vision was to do for water what Enron did for electricity. Um, so, you know, we know that Enron went swimmingly well. Uh. <laughs> one, of the, um, one of the places that you look at is this town that is essentially a company town, a wonderful company town. <laughs> mm, <laughs> it's yes. hard to say that without sounding like it's a fabulous place. Tell me about it. Um, yeah, so Lost Hills uh, is you know, basically a town where the majority of people work for the wonderful company. 
it's kind of on the west side of the valley in the middle of the the resnick pistachio orchards um and you know close to their big processing plant it's also adjacent to um a large oil um field and oil refinery um which we kind of get into a little bit in the movie um because there's a lot of fumes and problems from that um but basically they first started attracting some negative press i don't know like quite a while ago in the early 2000s a small outfit wrote about them um and they sort of being very pr savvy and you know i think maybe they also see themselves as being good people i don't know <laughs> i decided to start investing philanthropically in, in this town lost hills where their workers are um so they spent quite a lot of money you know i mean well you know in, the, in that sort of tens of millions maybe maybe more it's sort of developing the town fixing up some of the things you know it's a sort of town which has trailer parks might not have had working street lights uh you know everything's pretty rough there um so they built a nice park in the center of town with a community center they fixed up some of the streets um and you know and then went and did the sort of publicity tours uh you know everybody from you know the new york times it's his name thomas friedman writing about how great they are and speaking at the Aspen institute um but you know, of course we go to this town and um try to get under the skin of what's going on there and uh you know discover that the things are pretty superficial and there's still some pretty serious problems there uh you know most namely that the the drinking water is is terrible um so where their farms have this kind of water shipped in from the mountains from the north of the state the local community is dependent on groundwater uh which is terribly overpumped that can concentrate um chemicals like arsenic <laughs> naturally occurring arsenic um and all sorts of other things in the water uh so then as a solution to that they dumped some chemical treatments into the water uh which was uh in parts of the town causing a situation a little bit like Flint Michigan where um it was having a reaction with the pipes and melting the pipes um and also there was a lot of chemical residue um you know coming through to some people's houses and making the water taste very bad uh you know and that along with all these sort of air quality problems with the oil field being nearby and uh, sort of some of the sprays and things used and um, commercial things so you know the the reality of the town is pretty bleak and there's probably ways they could have invested some money into tackling some of these things but they they don't make good photo opportunities <laughs> yes but they've spent i mean lost hills is is arguably the the showcase for their philanthropy and they've spent millions on the residents uh sidewalks and parks and playing fields and affordable housing and a preschool and a health clinic it looks shiny and it looks good it does look good in their corporate videos uh i mean i think one thing if you imagine a normal um you know rural community that wasn't owned by one farming monolith you would have a bunch of local landowners there um they would have a tax base you'd have some economic diversity so that locality would be able to pay for its own sidewalks um they wouldn't need philanthropy uh you know from a company that essentially extracts profit from the labor force and from the land uh in that area i think also um you know a lot of the money they've invested i mean sure they've invested money in a school but they built a corporate branded charter school um you know which is going to further the educational goals of their own company that very open about um the school being about basically helping to fast track people into their um own corporate and you know farm worker training program you know so it's not exactly you know the american dream you know of um you know mobility uh let you know through class uh, 
you know, life and yada yada. I suppose and they, they actually, they, you know, they leverage state grants too. So a lot of the housing was actually state grants. They sort of put their name on. I suppose the thing about pistachio nuts is, it's not like they're an essential food group. You know, they're they're a nice to have. And the argument at the base of the documentary is they are too costly to grow in this way. Similarly, almonds, which I think the Resnicks are also involved in. But the pistachio, I mean, essentially they're responsible for making pistachio nuts ubiquitous, are they not? Yeah, I mean, that's why it's interesting we focus on them in the film is because... You know, America didn't have a huge taste for pistachios. They were kind of sold, but they've never been a big American snack. Um, and the Resnicks kind of got some crops and decided to start growing them and really pumped a lot of money into marketing them. You know, so their annual marketing budgets are in the, you know, 50, 100 million kind of, kind of zone. And it basically created the American market. Um, they've also created a huge export market to China. Um, so they've gone from exporting something like 15 um, million pounds a year to China to... 245 million pounds of, of pistachio nuts to China in the last 15 years. So when you look at a state that's, um, you know, a constantly supposedly in a state of crisis because of its lack of water, you've got cities like Los Angeles being told to rip out their lawns and take short showers and, you know, not serve you a glass of water with your dinner, you know, this kind of slightly ridiculous measures and, you know, in contrast to the scale of water of these big farms. Um, and you've also got the water coming out of um, this, this river estuary that's the biggest river estuary on the west coast of America. It's the rivers that feed the um, San Francisco Bay, uh, you know, the lovely bay we all know with the red bridge um, going across it. Um, so this is the sort of nexus for all of California's big rivers. And um, uh, they built these, um, you know, giant modifications to the, the river delta that have completely changed the way it flows, the temperature of it, the way that fish can migrate through there. Um, the fish get carted around in trucks, you know, and dumped in different places. It's kind of insane. And uh, predictably, all the fish are dead, you know, so there's a mass extinction um, happening in this in this river estuary. So the costs of, of this massive water use, um, you know, and then when you think about that, that like, so I don't know, like 250 million pounds of uh, pistachio is going to China, that would be, you know, 128 billion litres of water, I think, um, off the top of my head. So that's about a million acre feet. So if you have a, a kid's paddling pool the size of Los Angeles, roughly, um, that's how much water is going just to the exports of pistachios to China. Um, so, you know, it's a, I think people like pistachios. They're tasty little things. But, uh, you know, I think in a slightly more sane world, we might moderate how many of them we can shove into our faces, um, you know, so that we don't destroy so much stuff. The the documentary also suggests, and I I don't I mean I I don't go stronger than suggests, but you might, that the Resnicks who styled themselves as very progressive Democrats support Gavin Newsom in California, la da da. They're very hawkish on Iran, and you're suggesting that. They never wanted accommodation with Iran because Iran would dent their pistachio empire once again. Yeah, well, that's right. That's one of the sort of stranger, weirder aspects of this whole industry because the American pistachio industry didn't really exist um, until know, the revolution 30 years ago. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there was the you know the revolution in Iran where they threw out the American-backed um, monarch, this kind of the guy the Shah, and you know students took over the embassy. They took hostages, American hostages. So it's this huge thing that gripped America and it turned relations very bad between America and um, Iran. And there was an embargo of all of the Iranian exports. Uh, and Iran's maybe second biggest export after oil is pistachios. Um, it's a distant second, but it's they're the biggest exporter in the world, along with Turkey. Um, so the American farmers at, at that stage didn't have much of an industry, so it saw an opportunity, basically. Uh, but they're very conscious that um, their market position depends on keeping the Iranian pistachios out, because when you look at the way that American pistachios are sold, they're basically a snack commodity. They're very expensive. You know, you get a tiny pack for a few dollars, whereas in Iran, the pistachios are sold basically as a bulk food. So, you know, Iran could undercut the American costs massively and still be making a lot of money. Um, so, you know, one of the things in the film, we went to the American Pistachio Growers Conference in um, Palm Springs, and I was kind of blown away how front and center of their agenda it was you know they're sort of talking about water but they've got an entire segment of the conference talking about the history with iran and talking about how they need to lobby both around that time it was the iran nuclear deal so uh, the obama administration is trying to um, i suppose normalize relations with iran or taking steps towards normalizing relations and trying to maybe work towards iran not having a nuclear weapon or developing a nuclear weapon and these pistachio farmers are terribly worried because with that would come um, a loosening of the, um, you know, of the, the sanctions, and that would that would definitely dent their industry. So, I mean, in terms of the Resnick's involvement, yeah, I mean, you know, this is one of the fun things about doing a film like this in California because I think people tend to think, oh, well, America, you know, it's the blue states—they're great, you know, they're working well, and it's, it's the problem is all the red states, but. California, everybody's a Democrat and everybody's a liberal, but they're still kind of doing the same evil stuff under the under the covers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the resumes probably, I mean, it's all very hard. It's a very opaque world. We don't get privy to what they're actually doing with some of these people they're giving money to. Um, but they were on the board, probably the most confusing and hard to explain thing is that they were on the board of a think tank called the Washington Institute for Nearest Policy, for around a decade, you know, so firstly, it's like they're kind of quirky people. They're not necessarily people that talk about foreign policy. Um, you know, they might have an interest in Israel, you know, being uh, Jewish, but they don't, it's not part of their image. Um, so why why on earth they're on this uh, think tank that's very hawkish on Iran? They're basically a spin-off from APAC, which is a big Israel lobby, um, and they're, they're pretty open about winning a war with Iran. And all of the big goons, you know, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, all the spooks go through this place to win up. It's basically an, an incubator for people who develop policy on the Middle East. It's not on the fringe. It's right at the center of the American political establishment. So, you know, we don't really know what they're doing on there. But I mean, yeah, they're, you know, they're making donations alongside people like Sheldon Aylson to, you know, big kind of uh, Zionist organizations that are, you know, very anti-Iran. Uh, they're rubbing shoulders to some people that definitely, you know, are not what you'd imagine for these people to hang out with Stephen Colbert, you know, and give money to the LACMA and, um, you know, all these things. That nice Stephen Colbert. That's right. Yeah, well, I guess everyone has their price, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> does does um, Stuart Resnick or Linda Resnick, do they ever give interviews to people? 
or do we just get clips of them talking about giving back and doing good? Well, yes, that's another thing. I mean, part of our film is trying to get in touch with them, and we don't go as far as Michael Moore. No, you're you know, a bit Michael Moore on that one. That, a little bit Michael Moore, but when Michael Moore manages to talk to the guy in his movie, which is, um, you know, something we never achieved. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's basically it. They they own this thing, which is a public resource, so they own enough water to supply Los Angeles, basically, like the biggest city in California. They could just be supplying its water. Uh but they're completely unaccountable. There's just absolutely no way they'll talk to you unless they think you're going to do a puff piece on them or, you know, it's within a very safe context. So they give a lot of interviews to weird small people, but again, it's always just to puff them up about marketing or philanthropy or, um, and they said they never returned our calls. We did get some interest eventually after we got um, kicked out of their corporate town, the park, and um, somebody within their company must have started to try and figure out what we were up to because they made some um, back channel requests but um, it certainly never extended to them saying, we would like to talk to you and give you our side of the story. <laughs> that was weird. So you were in the town, Lost Hills, and you were shooting part of your documentary and the company told you to go away. Yeah, there's a lady from the company who I suppose maybe manages the park. Um, and she, I guess she saw us walking around with the camera. We weren't really doing anything we were just talking to a local community organizer there who's you know been pretty active trying to help the locals deal with their water problem and some of the air pollution so you know we just met her there as a place to shoot um we weren't sort of i don't know doing anything strange and she approached us and sort of was a little friendly she looks like a nice lady she's wearing sandals and you know um but she asked us very quickly to stop filming and asked us if we have um, permits, uh, you know, and basically tries to shut us down. Uh, and uh, so yeah. it was not it was not a public place. It was it looked like a public place, but it wasn't. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I don't know what the actual jurisdiction is. I think also it's complicated. The park might might have been um, run by the company, and they may have actually handed it back to the county in recent years. It's been renamed about at least three times it was paramount park and then it was wonderful park and now it's lost hills park so they might be copying some flack or they might just be offloading some of the costs to the city i don't you know to the county i don't know um uh, but yeah i mean obviously they see it as their territory and um they keep a pretty close eye on whatever's going on there um quick correction earlier on somebody's pointed this out to me um you said 250 million tons of pistachios exported to China, it's 250 million kilos, just in case people think going to be overrun with oh, pistachios. Yeah. Oh, I didn't say tons, I said pounds, pounds. Pounds. Thank you. Yes. Somebody misheard you and they were wrong. Thank you for that. Yeah. Tons, um, tons would be very, that would be a lot. Yeah. That would be too many pistachios, even for somebody who liked pistachios. The thing about pistachios is, you know, we're banging on about how we should eat less meat on account of the climate change and eat more, you know, fruits and nuts. But but not all fruits and nuts are equal. And do you eat pistachios? <laughs> um, for the purposes of this interview, I'm going to say no. Oh, uh, you're lying <laughs> to me. Um, I've eaten them once or twice, yes. Well, um, well me too, yeah, but not I mean, now. What can I say? Not you know, now. Um, I don't I mean, know where... I, I think, like... I don't know where the pistachios we get in New Zealand come from, though. 
They're probably Californian pistachios. Um, I'm not sure. There might be some Iranian um, ones coming in, but I'm not sure. We tend to often mirror the arrangements of the Americans. Yeah, I suspect um, so. Yeah. If they are Californian pistachios, should we not eat them? Should we boycott them? I mean, I'm not sure. I think it depends what you think the solution to you know society's problems is. Um, you know, I think maybe boycotting things can do something, but... I mean, really, we need something at a higher political level. And it's not just pistachios. You know, it's, it's pretty much everything in our economy, in a you know, highly consumeristic economy that is, is causing this stress on the environment. Um, you know, where the film is kind of a film in the world of climate change. We don't talk about climate change that much, but it's very much in the world of, um, you know, drought and so on. Uh, but I mean... Um, I mean, I think like the, the commoditization of, of a lot of foods, you know, there's other agricultural regions in the US, which are, I think Pringles, you know, the Pringles company is, um, they have something equivalent um, with their potato growing, you know, for the potato chips. Um, so everywhere in the world that you have intensive agriculture, you have these similar problems of massive subsidence, you've got nitrates leaching, um, you know, and I think I think the problem is overconsumption uh, more than it's just pistachios or just one thing. I mean, it's a very specific problem in California because. Um, well, consumption, pistachios... overconsumption, absolutely.